two things that help protect muscle mass are a higher protein diet and resistance exercise. So if you're dieting, do those two things. Try to eat higher protein and what that might mean different things for different people. The second thing is, yeah, resistance train. Welcome to the Wits and Weights podcast. I'm your host, Philip Pape, and this twice-a-week podcast is dedicated to helping you achieve physical self-mastery by getting stronger, optimizing your nutrition, and upgrading your body composition. We'll uncover science-backed strategies for movement, metabolism, muscle, and mindset with a skeptical eye on the fitness industry so you can look and feel your absolute best. Let's dive right in. Wits and Weights community, welcome to another episode of the Wits and Weights podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Bill Campbell, whose work I've followed for a few years, including his monthly research review, Body by Science. We are tackling some very important topics today related to improving your body composition to get the physique you want, including how consuming highly processed foods impacts your goals. Can a rapid fat loss phase be effective? Why weight plateaus occur and how to break them? Which is more important for your physique, training or nutrition, and the use of diet breaks and refeeds to optimize your physique? Bill Campbell is a professor and director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. He publishes a monthly research review, Body by Science, that summarizes the latest and best research focusing on fat loss and building muscle. Bill has published over 200 papers, three textbooks, 20 book chapters related to physique enhancement, and his articles have been cited over 7,000 times. He's also the co-creator with Dr. Lane Norton of the Physique Coaching Academy, the most comprehensive and evidence-based course and mentorship program helping weight loss and physique coaches around the world. Bill, it is a joy to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thank you. That's quite an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) well-deserved. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting about you and your work is that, you know, you've dedicated to your career to enhancing how we understand physique enhancement, which is a, a more knit area of, you know, we talk about body composition, training, health, fitness. Why is that specifically important to you, including the work you do at USF and what continues to motivate you to push those boundaries? Yeah. So when I use the word physique enhancement, that kind of implies a person that wants to take their physique to kind of a an advanced, some might say elite level. So knowing that, I, I make no apologies with the fact that I'm on the vanity side of mm-hmm. our profession. So as an exercise scientist, I serve people that aren't necessarily doing their exercise and nutrition for health reasons, but for vanity reasons. And again, I don't make apologies to that because Nobody does this. Uh, And there are a lot of harms, health harms that can be done. So one of the things that my research does is we, we emphasize how to help people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. And that part of that statement, that precludes some unhealthy practices that people have done in the past that fortunately we're getting away from. My research does serve bodybuilders. In fact, bodybuilders are who I study. They're the experts of fat loss. I just dial back what they do a, a notch or two to to broadcast to what people like myself. So I don't have a plan to step on stage, but I'd like to look like I could step on stage mm-hmm. in the next few weeks or a few months. And the, also, this uh, obviously, I do a lot of reading of the obese research as well, because there's a lot, a lot to glean from that area. And my career actually started off studying people with obesity. And then over the last five, 10 years, I've gravitated towards this 
the more people who are in shape, who are exercising, what do they want to do to go to the next level in a way that they can maintain? So that's what I do. That's what I'm motivated to do. And essentially, I would say I, I design research studies with my team that benefit me and my wife. Like, mm-hmm. well, what, how do we want to improve our physiques? How do we want to improve our, our function? Um, how do, you know, and do this where we can go out for ice cream with our kids and, and make sure that's part of the plan. So it's kind of a selfish endeavor. Yeah. And, and when I look at it like that as well. I love it. And you had me at ice cream, man, because that's uh, one of my <laughs> most enjoyable vices. Especially, well, you, you're in South Florida, and I told you I grew up in South Florida. So, you know, it's just a thing you have. Um, yeah. I think that's a, a really important distinction you made there with, or not distinction, but you talked about um, fo- a focus on vanity and a focus on looks, but making it maintainable. And uh, a lot of people shy away from talking about that or uh, kind of dance around it in terms of talking about why it's so something so great for your health. You know, we even talk about body composition and strength training and emphasize a lot of these other things. And at the end of the day, everybody wants to look better as well. It's, it's probably a natural human thing uh, built into our, our DNA. Um, and like you said, you need to understand how to do that in a healthy way. So how, how do we balance um, those things? And specifically, how do we take all the information? So you do research but man, you can you can find thousands of articles online about one of these topics, and most people don't go past the abstract. Let's be honest. Um, how do you take that and actually apply it to practice and walk the line between the two before we get into the topics? Yeah, and, and one thing that that I also say is my research is focused on your physique, but there's a lot of health snuck in the back door. You can't As a get side a benefit, right? Yeah, yeah. If you lose <laughs> yeah. excess body fat by default, you're healthier. If you're engaging in exercise, any exercise, if you're walking an extra 2,000 steps per day, there are clear metabolic improvements in your health that are, that will be realized. Um, now, again, I, I guess my marketing curtain is, hey, do this to build bigger muscles, do this to lose more mm-hmm. body fat. But behind all of that, I just choose not to, not, not to come at it from a health perspective, right. but it's all there. Um, and the older I get, the more I appreciate that. that's true of anybody. The older you get, the more you start to move your interests from physique to health. Um, and again, not that people ignore physique, but there is a greater appreciation of health the older you get. Um, I don't think that answered your question um, in terms of, well, I, I, it, it was it actually, but I like that. Let's, let's take that tangent just a, a bit and pull the thread because I also work with a lot of older folks and so older meaning over 40, I'm over 40. And they're usually people who lift, who like to lift, but they're like, I got to shed a little bit of extra body fat now. You know, it's just, it's come time. And by the way, I'm doing it because I want to be healthy and I'm worried about my blushing. But let's be honest, I also want to look good. There's always both. Like I've never seen just because, just because we get older. And like you said, you, you focus more on health than you did when you were young, when you might not have even cared a lick about it because you got all these years ahead of you. That's right. But you never lose that idea of, hey, I still want to look great and feel great because I'm a human. So, yeah. And one yeah. thought that popped in when you said working with somebody that's older, 40s or, or older, and we just yeah. insulted every, yeah, everybody who's in their 40s, <laughs> including me. And me too. Um, hey, you know. <laughs> it's, um, and now I, I kind of lost my, my train of thought, but even if you are, maintaining your body fat in your 40s, mid 40s and on, you're actually winning because Mm -hmm. the normal progression is you gain body fat 
in your you know mid 40s more in your 50s more in your 60s so that's something that that a lot of people don't appreciate if you working just to maintain puts you ahead if you want to lose and this is maybe something i don't know if, uh, what what your his, history has been with body composition but you have to work quite a bit harder in your 40s than you did in your 20s to get the same body composition outcome mm-hmm. And a lot of our younger professionals have no clue. They, 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 and again, that's not a, I, those are who I teach. Those are my students um, that they just haven't lived long enough. Sure. Or it's e- it's easy for them, quote unquote, in relative terms, right? Yeah. It, abs- yeah. Yes, it is. Re- again, not e- Yes. Yeah. Relative terms, I think is the yeah. key statement there, yeah. but it is an appreciation. And then again, you factor in, do, do our, do your clients have children? What's their work demands? I just, I remember when I was younger, my career, my days, my life revolved around my training. Well, that mm-hmm. that gets harder to do as life starts. Obligations, to... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Or you get injuries, injuries, or in my case, I had rotator cuff surgery about two weeks ago. So now wow. I'm like, I can't lift it. I'm gonna next week be a, the three arm, the the three limbed man, and try to get back into it. Uh, yeah. You know. But you're right. Um, so why don't we why don't we dive into some of the specific topics that I mentioned before then? Um, that cover this, both from a nutrition and training perspective. And the first one is about uh, highly processed foods. I mean, kind of out of the blue, but it is an important topic because a lot of people struggle with uh, controlling their intake of highly palatable foods, whether it's fast food, junk food, snacks, sweets, whatever you want to call them, even the ice cream we talked about before. Uh, that, that, that's my vulnerability. Um, and one of the impacts of our food environment is just that people overconsume this stuff naturally, right? I mean, the studies show that people will overconsume highly palatable foods, all things equal, when they're not tracking, when they're not intending to do, um, you know, stay in a particular trajectory. So, what are all the various ways that consuming these foods impact our physique goals? Energy balance being one of them, but I'm sure there are others. Yes, yeah, so I start with research that's uh, epidemiological in nature, which which reports consistently. The greater amount of highly ultra-processed foods you eat, the higher your BMI. Stated differently, the more processed foods you eat, the more body fat you have. So there's our base. And then we can kind of look at different research about mechanisms as to why. So one thing, I think you kind of mentioned it, but if you're not active, if you're not on top of your caloric intake, those foods, and I think the best way to mention this is they're engineered to overconsume, and it's it's um, it makes sense from a business standpoint. And and my, I have a degree in marketing. I actually like marketing. I like reading about marketing. That's my pleasure reading. So I appreciate the marketing side of things. And just even with you know just highly processed foods, it's just it's so not it's it's they're engineered that we're going to keep eating them because it does not in it has very little effect on appetite. And just the time savings, like it's so easy to open up a package of something and consume it than it is to grill a chicken breast or to cook your rice or whatever, you know, your own food prep is. So it's it's a very hard battle for a lot of people and hard battle for myself at times to to not default to easier, more processed food choices. Um, let me just transition that to the base statement of the the more you eat the higher your bmi there's been one study that was done which did discuss or investigate a mechanism in fact this is the only study that's ever actually shown 
that eating a highly processed food diet will increase body weight and body fat. And what they did was they had subjects for two weeks eat an only ultra processed food diet. And then for another two weeks, the same subjects ate a non-processed food diet. So they had them live in a, in a research unit for 28 days. It might've been 30 days under two different conditions. And essentially what happened was when they eat the ultra processed food diet, and by the way, the subjects were blinded to the, the, the study. Like they didn't know why they were doing this. They just know that their food was prepared for them. So they didn't know it was a weight gain, weight loss study. And the subjects, while they were on the ultra food processed diet, they ate an additional about 500 calories per day, leading to about a two pound weight gain over the two week period. And they actually had a little bit of weight loss when they were on the, the non-processed food diet. And the really intriguing thing was, which at first when I read it, it, it puzzled me. There were no differences in their subjective feelings of hunger in either of these two week, uh, stud, uh, two week phases. And I'm like, but I thought that ultra processed foods made us more hungry. Like they don't satiate you as much. And then the more I thought about it, it was obvious. They, they were just as hungry or that they were, they, they got the same feelings of hunger, but they had to eat 500 more to calories. consume more. Yeah. To yes. get the satiety. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. It took, mm-hmm. took me a few minutes to like, yeah. Oh, it makes yeah. sense. And one other thing, and this is a whole other conversation, these subjects overate on carbs and fat. So most of the excess calories were from the carbs and fat, the snacks, essentially. Um, And that goes into another topic called protein leverage theory. So if you follow my work or some of my research, um, we do, we've published some studies about the importance of having like a a higher protein diet to enhance your physique and just to prevent excess weight gain. Yeah. And, and as I was mentioning before we recorded this, that the episode coming out right before this, it already came out as people are listening to this was all about protein. And I referenced some of that, that the study you talked about where um, women had just a slight increase in protein and, and there was a massive difference in body fat reduction and so on. So I, yeah, I think that's important. What about, what about um, if you control for calories? So the calories are the same between two groups. What other effects would we see? Um, for example, the thermic effect of feeding, I understand, is higher with whole foods. What, what would, you know, would your expenditure change just all things equal uh, or any other variables change because you're eating whole foods versus processed foods? Yeah. So I'm aware of one study where that's been shown. So you have a thousand calories of a, of a whole food meal and you have a thousand calories of a ultra processed meal. You're, you're going to expend more calories with the whole, the non-processed meal. Now that's probably, it, I wouldn't call it trivial because you do that meal after meal, day after day, that will likely have an effect over time. But there's yet, not only do you, not only when you eat a highly processed food diet, not only are you going to be hungrier, but your body actually less burns fewer calories to digest, absorb, transport, and process those foods. So you're kind of losing on both ends of the spectrum there and the energy in you're likely to consume more and your energy expended or your energy out. So we, that's, again, there's, there's, um, there's nothing that the science is not favorable to anything about highly ultra processed foods. If you're trying to optimize your physique or trying to um, manage weight gain. Now, that being said, 
again, my core tenant is optimize your physique within a maintainable lifestyle, mm-hmm. for, at least for me and how I'm raising my children. Our life, our, maintaining our lifestyle is eating ice cream sometimes, mm-hmm. eating yep. potato chips sometimes. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yes. Now, yeah. some people, that they would say that's horrible. How do you do that? Um, my, my children have soda sometimes. So, and I'm very sensitive. I have daughters, so I, I'm I'm very hypersensitive to eating disorders or disorder eating. So mm-hmm. we don't sure. really talk about, you know, hey, we just know if you're going to have a snack, you get a bowl. And when you finish the bowl, you're done. Yeah. You got that enjoyment. Um, so th- there's that aspect as well. Yes, the research isn't favorable, but uh, I know the research and I'm going to have chocolate chip cookies sometime in the next week. Likewise, I- I'm totally with you there. And again, it's 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 a, a matter of quantity. It's like all the recent studies and observations about aspartame, you know, like make sure to have less than 15 cans of soda every single day. So you avoid <laughs> the, you know, deleterious effects of, of, of aspartame. Anyway. Um, so, so that's what I was going to ask. And you basically answered that is like, how do we, is there a place for those in our diet? And the answer is yes. If you want it to be maintainable, at least if you enjoy those foods, obviously if you just enjoy eating hundred percent whole foods, go for it. Um, what about when the foods are associated with emotional triggers, binge eating, things like that, right? Specific trigger foods. Uh, you know, do you get into those uh, discussions in terms of helping people or clients with improving their relationship with food in that context? Yeah, so that that's I'm outside of my research okay. expertise when it when it comes to that, like eating behaviors, um, behavioral psychology. Um, I, I will just say practically, a lot of coaches that 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 are in my network, they they have kind of a base recommendation, which is the 80-20 rule. So mm-hmm. I pr- try to have 80% of your food choices be from whole food and 20% being the, the, the foods that might be a little bit more hyper palatable. Now, we, we also need to, to suggest here, and again, I'm not talking about health, but there are also um, this eating a highly processed food diet. Yes, it causes more hunger. Yes, it causes less energy output. There are meta, meta, metabolic consequence, metabolic health consequences as well. So more insulin production, probably a greater risk for type two diabetes. So um, I'm not focused on the, the those those health effects of this, um, but that's a consideration as well. Usually nutrient deficient, um, but again, I tend to focus on just the adipose tissue side of this, which that's that's a very health centric focus. Sure just on eliminating or reducing excess adiposity in somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of nutrients and food science, you mentioned how fascinating it is with the marketing and the science. And I agree. Do you remember that show? The guy from uh, Mark Summers, I think it was, from Nickelodeon back in the day, he had this show about uh, how factories make food. And you can find them, watch them like, like, like Twinkies or something. And ah. it's, it's, a, it's incredible, right? Like the robotics behind it and, and how they engineer the ingredients to come together. But then when you learn what those ingredients are, you're like, okay, now I understand. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> it's, you know, everything's ground down to a fine powder and then smashed together. And there's like no nutrition in that whatsoever. But it now tastes I, good, you know, for a lot of people. So yeah, yeah. Funny. Um, I, okay, like, yeah. I haven't seen that, but I, I like that kind of stuff. Oh, what was it? Un, what was it called? Unsnap, un, I don't know. Unwrapped. Unwrapped is what it was. I think it was okay. back in the 90s. I don't know. Um, so, okay. So then the next topic is I want to talk about is aggressive fat loss. And so when we talk about whole and processed foods for hunger, we talked about controlling calories. One of the scenarios, of course, with improving your body composition is 
fat loss and managing the symptoms that come along with that, like hunger. So I couldn't imagine eating an all-Twinkie diet during an aggressive fat loss phase. Um, there are different reasons people want to lose fat, quote-unquote, quickly. And we can define what quickly means, right? We're not talking crash diets. Um, whether it's an event, like a wedding, a vacation, maybe a physique competition, um, or guys like myself or, or lifters who I work with who just want to get in and out, you know, they're already in a somewhat lean range, but they just need to kind of cut that excess fat in eight, 10, 12 weeks and minimize muscle loss, right? Yep. So how can, how can rapid fat loss be done effectively? It needs to be done. Um, the research that I'm reading, in fact, we, we were about to submit my lab's research on, on a rapid fat loss study. So the, the answer is based on my interpretation of the research and my own lab's findings, it needs to be very short. So if you're going to be aggressive, or if you're even going to take an extreme approach to fat loss, get in, get out. If you want to protect lean mass, you want to protect your metabolism. The harm is greater. It, apparently, it, the harm is greater in lean people embracing crash dieting, quick, aggressive, rapid fat loss strategies that go on and on and on. There doesn't... Uh, some of the most recent research that I've read with, on individuals with obesity doesn't seem to be as detrimental mm. um, to be very aggressive. And again, the caveat is in both situations, it needs to be short. Um, when I say I'll, I'll define it, 14 days or less of being in a very severe caloric deficit. And let's define that as approximately 40% or more of a, of a caloric deficit. As soon as you start going longer than that, then I, I don't, I don't, I, I, in my interpretation of the, the, the broad research, which there's not a lot of studies, you're, there's only so much, there's only so much muscle that you're able to maintain in a short period of time. So as these aggressive diets gets extended, lean mass is lost, metabolic rate is suppressed, and then the, the big catch here is this this um, post diet phase or post diet observation called fat overshoot, where if you've taken an extreme approach to dieting for an extended period of time, your your hunger levels it's a it's a, a term that described it is called hyperphagia, which is basically an uncontrollable desire to eat. So it's binge eating when the diet is over. There's been the hypothesis that this feeling of hyperphagia, uncontrollable desire to eat after your diet ended will persist until you have been able to gain back the lean tissue that you lost during your extreme diet. So one thing my lab has focused on is let's design diets that protect muscle mass from the first day of dieting so that we never get into this. So there's the, again, there's that sustainable part of this. So protecting muscle mass needs to be a priority when in a fat loss diet. And that's true whether it's a slow and methodical six-month process or a 10-day extreme diet process. What are the things we can do to protect muscle mass and prevent this post-diet rebound fat overshoot and a, a feeling of just uncontrollable hunger? Okay, I want to break down at least two or three of those concepts, Bill. So the first one, you talked about the aggressiveness in terms of the deficit. You said 40% or more. Just to do some quick math, uh, let's say a male who burns 3,000 calories a day, that would be uh, 
1200 calorie deficit, which is around two and a half pounds a week. So assuming that person's say 180 to 200 pounds, that is more than the 1% you often hear in the normal range of fat loss, right? You hear quarter to 1% of your body weight per week is always the number thrown around. And this sounds like it's more like 1.2 or maybe 1.5%. Is that about right in terms of percentages? Yeah, that seems about yeah that that okay. seems about right. And again, I I like to base it a a little bit more on just the caloric deficit. The deficit. So when you okay. say around forty percent, yes, if that's going to be extended, I I would anticipate losses of lean mass, significant reductions in and in, in metabolic rate, which again, do not serve us well for long term. Of course not. Okay, but if somebody wanted to lop off ten pounds in two weeks. And there are 200 pounds, and that seems feasible. That, that's interesting, right? Because I was just just want to put boundaries on this because I've I've never gone there with anybody. I don't work with that kind of client, but I could definitely see that being a tool. Um, hyperphagia is that induced by the muscle loss itself and some sort of hormonal signals as a result of it, or is it the fat loss and the shrinkage of your fat cells sending some signal causing that hunger? Do you know the mechanism there? No, I, uh, what you're asking is debated. So historically, okay. it's been what they would call the lipostatic theory, which was your fat, um, you're losing body fat, and that causes this hormonal environment. So loss of leptin, increase in ghrelin, that's what causes this. And then we had a protein stat theory, which was popularized by uh, a researcher called Dulu. And he presented data from the Minnesota starvation trial, some very compelling data. Um, other research in in um, army cadets that were losing massive amounts of body weight in five week periods of time with extended extreme caloric deficits. That research seems to point to it's not the fat loss because the subjects that experience fat overshoot where they're gaining significantly more body fat than what they had before they started the diet. This these this hyperphagia was still occurring even after they had gained all of their body fat back hmm. from the dieting. And it persisted until they gained back their lean tissue. So that's, that's the, the, again, I don't think, I, I don't, this is not settled yet, but I look at the available evidence and think there's more, there, it sides more with the muscle. The muscle. Yes. And then hmm. if, if you're going to ask, well, what's the mechanism with muscle and hunger? I I don't have an I don't know. I don't know if anybody yeah. does. There might be people that have that have been investigating that. But it does seem like muscle is is, is a little bit more important for keeping hunger under control post diet compared yeah. to fat loss. Yeah, and and even if we don't understand the mechanism, people listening, it, it's just I just want to hammer home the point always of how important it is to keep your lean mass however you need to do it. Hey, this is Philip, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of Wits and Weights. If you're finding value in the content and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast platform. By following, you'll get notified whenever a new episode comes out, and you won't miss out on knowledge and strategies to level up your health and fitness. All right, let's get back to the episode. And so going back to the aggressive dieting, if someone just wanted to do what we might call a mini cut, I don't know what you would call this 14-day highly aggressive diet, if there's a term, but somebody wanted to say do it over a four to eight-week period, which is a little more typical. Uh, what do we need to do to maintain muscle mass? Is it more of the 1% or, do you, again, do you go by a calorie deficit? 
Um, well, in general, it's very simple. Two things that help protect muscle mass are a higher protein diet and resistance exercise. So if you're dieting, do those two things. Try to eat higher protein and what that may, might mean different things for different people. The second thing is, yeah, resistance train. And then the other consideration, yes, is what is the, what's the caloric deficit? How, how much can we, how aggressive can we be? And I'll just share what, what we found in our study. So we had resistance trained males and females on a 37.5% on average, 37.5% caloric deficit for 14 days. Our initial analysis of our data was they lost a third of their body weight from, from lean body mass, which is more than what you would ever want. But then we did what all researchers should be doing with these types of studies. We accounted for the losses of body water. So they lost considerable amounts of body water in this short period of time. And when you factor that in, they pretty much maintained all of their what I call dry fat-free mass or dry lean tissue. Um, and that was that was also supported by their um, resting metabolic rate. There was a drop um, in the first two weeks, but that came back quickly in the following two weeks. So my, our study's data is what I used to, if you listen to anything I would have said three years ago, it was avoid rapid fat loss approaches all the time. There's no nuance. And now my own data has made me revisit this, find some other studies that also report in this area. And I'm like, okay, there is more nuance to this. And my nu my nuance that my data and some other studies that I've read is you, we can be aggressive if it's a short-term aggressive approach. And some of my latest reading just in the last two weeks is in people with obesity, it may even be a wise decision to be aggressive mm -hmm. initially. Um, so that there is a, um, a again, this is where I'm not a, a behavioral psychologist, but there's this feeling of success and tangible results immediately. Whereas always going slow all the time, you don't get that. Um, so yes, I'm. If, if you haven't noticed, I'm literally in the midst of my of a personal yeah, diet <laughs> transition of my own thinking. Um, and I'll have it resolved in another month or two. I just have to read some more studies so I can feel All good. All right. Send me the answer when you have it. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. everybody will find. That's funny because, yeah, I mean, I could see where all of these could apply. So, somebody who's who's uh, obese, I guess the, the one thing that comes to mind is if their expenditure's kind of low, right? With somebody who's been sedentary and has been training and don't, don't have much muscle mass, and for whatever reason, lower expenditure, it could be, it could be very tough even on a short term because now the calories are just ridiculously low to where you might have to make some more extreme trade-offs that are not sustainable. But again, it comes back to your premise. It needs to be somewhat maintainable in the long term. What about, so if you're, if you're trying to lose like 20 or 30 pounds, um, but don't want it to take that long, how aggressive can you go over two weeks? Because you said minimum 40% or you said that's around the number. That, that's what we, uh, let's just say approximately 40% okay. to, to make it easy. Yeah. That's what yeah. we investigated. And, and what we found was lean tissue was pretty much maintained with that aggression in two weeks. Now, we also have to appreciate our subjects were doing the same volume of resistance training, so they didn't change their training at all. And they were getting a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein. That's a lot of protein. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're a small person, it just happened to be a lot of our smaller females. 
that's almost all of their calories from protein if they're going to get a gram per pound. And we had to work with them on that. Um, it, it was not, and again, somebody like me, I had a lot more, <laughs> a lot more wiggle room with my calories. Yep. Yep. Somebody like my wife, like 80% of her calories were coming from protein. But what we learned is, a, at least in that one study, that's what it took to maintain this dry, fat-free mass. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't looked at it in too much, and I'm glad I asked about it. I, I want to hear more when it comes out because I could, you know, it, I almost envision a, a scale or a table that that has guidelines where, based on the aggressiveness and how much you want to lose, like here's where you could target. Because if you what for some people they have more weight to lose, you're not going to want to go, you know, eighty percent deficit for two weeks. So of course you're going to have to stretch it out. But how how long do you stretch it out versus how high do you go? You know, it's that yes. balance without losing the muscle mass. Yeah. And, that, and that's where, that's the question. What if we had gone three weeks? So my, my guess is if you start to go longer than two weeks, you start to lose the ability to maintain your, your lean tissue. Now, let's say you do lose some lean tissue over a month. It's not gone forever. You're going to get it back. It might take a week. It might take a month, six weeks. So it's not like you've damaged yourself for life because you've lost some lean tissue. But at the same time, that's also the time that you were dieting plus the time after that it took to get it back. That might be two, three months of you not building any new lean tissue. So there is that consideration. And I just want to uh, um, just throw out this idea of something that, I, I, that I'm, again, as I'm literally, you're watching my life flash before my eyes in terms of the press. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm changing, I think I'm changing my mind on this. There, there's a reason why being very aggressive for a short period of time makes sense to me. And I'll start with asking the question, when are people most motivated to diet? When they start or after they've been dieting for (laughs) right at the beginning. (laughs) So to me, it makes sense to leverage their motivation and their, their ability early on to beat hunger. Now I always say, Hunger always wins. You can beat hunger for breakfast. You can beat you can beat hunger for dinner. You can beat hunger for a week. Hunger will win. But can we design an aggressive approach where you have enough willpower to lose this excess body fat for the first week or two, and then you come out of it? And I'll give one other thought to this that just excites me. Let's say you put somebody on a moderate caloric deficit. So uh, you 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 tell me what would be a percentage decrease in calories that you would define as moderate? Half a percent of your body weight. So I don't do that. I don't think oh, in terms okay. of calories, yeah. but yeah. Okay. Well, let's 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 use that. So uh, they're going to lose half a percent of their body weight per week. So a pound uh, a week for a two hundred pound person. That's five hundred calorie deficit a day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to go back to the, okay. to the caloric deficit because I think it it, it tells a, it, it gives a better analogy. So let's just say it took somebody a 25% caloric deficit to get to this half a percent of body weight per week, which I think that's mm-hmm. probably actually pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start somebody on that and they're like, okay, well, now I'm dieting. I'm, I'm a little bit more irritable. I'm reducing and I can't eat all these foods and I'm hungrier. All right. That's, that, that would be a typical response. But what if you started somebody at the initial part and you cut their calories by 40% for the first week? Mm-hmm. And now you put them in week two, you put them at 25%. Guess what their mindset is? Yeah. 
I was thinking the same thing, man, a scaled yeah. version of this. Start aggressive and then scale it, yeah. scale it up. It's almost like you've gone up to maintenance with a refeed or something here. Yeah. It's, it's a completely yeah. different paradigm. You're like, I get all this extra food, but not really. You're still dying. You're, you're still yeah. dying. Now, again, this is where I know there's awesome psychology behind this. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what it is, but my logical brain says this makes sense. And I, 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 I'm going to be meeting with my research team today and we're going to be talking about future studies. And maybe we, maybe this is something we look into um, over the next year or two. Yeah. I like that idea. And I've seen a few people do that and I did it myself two, two cuts ago where I did it very aggressive at first and then scaled back intentionally planned it that way. And for me, it was knowing that my metabolic adaptation would be kicking in Yeah, and I just wanted to get, get as much gain, you know, loss at the beginning as I could. Um, that this is really good, really good stuff, Bill. Uh, so I'm going to actually switch some topics around and bring the refeed topic up to next. Cause I think it's a natural next step of, um, when we talk refeeds and diet breaks, you know, dieting for a long time can be psychologically taxing, just like we talked about. So if you do have that extra weight, you know, 30, 40, 50, or even more pounds to lose, you know, they're not going to do that in two weeks. You could take this scaled approach. That's one option we talked about. But where do diet breaks and refeeds fit in? And when would you choose to use them? Because that's always the question of like, do I take a two week? Do I take a weekend refeed every week? Because that's when it aligns with my lifestyle. Uh, do I take a longer diet break to kind of let things recover for a while psychologically and physically? Talk about that. Yeah. So I'll talk about my opinions. And then if we want to get into the research that I base my opinions on, we can. So let's we'll start with, I think, both. Again, starting where our conversation started, optimizing your physique within a maintainable lifestyle. So two things. One, we know that people eat more food on the weekends, that there's research demonstrating that. So why not design a diet that fits that lifestyle or that fits that data? So allow yourself to have more food on the weekends where you're still losing body fat. And what that looks like is you diet a little harder Monday through Friday so that you can then go back to maintenance on the weekends. And that fits your normal, what research says is a normal eating pattern. Now let's extend that. Diet breaks are typically defined as in weeks, like one week, two weeks, or more. Refeeds are typically one day or two days. In this maintainable lifestyle paradigm that, that, that I am an advocate of, you have refeeds on the weekends and you take diet breaks when you're on vacation, when there's periods of your life where you're just, you have diet fatigue, you take a week or two off and you, you, you're not in a perpetual caloric deficit. So I'm, I'm of the um, opinion you incorporate both. Now let's, let's, I always love to take a devil's advocate approach. The, the, Counter to that is, well, now you've just extended the torture of dieting and you're, it's going to take you longer. But my counter to that is, but this is a, your lifestyle. Like you're fitting this in. I don't want you to have to grind out four months of dieting for you to get to this low level of body fat. And now what? Chances are you're going to, you're going to increase it anyway. Let's just make this a part of your lifestyle. And again, there's still discipline involved when you do a refeed. It's back to maintenance calories. So you still have to have a regulatory or a governor on not overeating. Mm -hmm. And the same thing day. with yeah. the diet breaks. The, 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 you're going back to <clears throat> So there's still a level of control. But I, I think both. And let me say, does the research overwhelmingly suggest that they're better? And the answer is no. 
they're never worse than they, um, other than if you're going to say it takes more time. But we do have data, two studies, one from my lab and one from an Australian lab. Both studies in resistance trained people reported significant improvements in desire to eat. Let's just call it hunger. Um, in, in my study, it was disinhibition, which is the propensity to overeat when stressed or around hyperpalatable foods. Two different studies, both coming to the same conclusion that if you do, if you implement diet breaks, you're less hungry. And if you're less hungry, if these studies were elongated out to six months, 12 months, two years, again, hunger always wins. Anything you can do to help hunger likely gives you longer term success. So is doing a diet break going to, does it give you some hack that's metabolic and metabolic advantage? No, research wouldn't but it does in resistance train active fit people, it does seem to lower hunger levels. And do we know is that is that physiological hunger or physical or, or psychological or a little both? Or does it matter? <laughs> um, I don't I don't know. I will say that our data was based on a psychological questionnaire, which is called the mm-hmm. eating inventory. It's like a 51 question. And then the the other group was, I think, just basic Likert scales, like how hungry are you? It was um, desire to eat and something else. But both studies came to the same thing. But yes, I'm, I, I know the data was, was, was um, collected, you know, a psychological, you know, how do you feel? Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer as to anything past that. Yeah, no, and it's important that people listening understand this is it's primarily a lifestyle and psychology thing, even though hunger comes into it and that does does affect your behavior uh, physically in terms of your food choices, for example. Um, I, I The only caveats I've ever seen is people who are very kind of self-disciplined already and prefer a routine and, and kind of shifting things around tends to throw them off. Or people who are maybe very uh, sensitive to overeating naturally and like you said, it actually reduces it. But but perhaps if you have this like looking forward to the weekend mentality, for a small percentage of people, it, it may not be optimal. But I think for the most people, this is a, is a great strategy. So yeah, yeah. And you make a good yeah. point. Yeah. Maybe for a fitness professional working with a client, they can't turn it on and off. So they they go on a diet break or a refeed on Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and, <laughs> and they can't turn it off then obviously we know that that's not a good strategy for that yeah. client. Now, I will say that argument is not supported by the scientific research. You won't mm-hmm. find, there, has, there is n- not a study published, and again, there's not been many studies on this topic, but there is no studies published that would suggest that people have, that there's any issue with people being able to follow the sure. a diet break or diet refeeding and having relapse problems. But mm-hmm. like you just said, it, it's intuitive and it's logical that some people will struggle with that. And then we know, don't do this. It's, it's right. You're doing more harm than good. And that's just being a good coach and being aware mm-hmm. of, of, of your client's struggles. Yeah. And you talked about shifting the calories. That's the other thing I want to clarify for folks, at least the way I understand it with refeeds. You could either take a, a net slowdown approach to refeed, meaning you're going to have your normal deficit during the week and then up to maintenance, but now you've slowed your progress down or you're going to eat, like you said, diet harder during the week. Do we both of the, do both of those count as refeeds, I guess, or it, one is just a slower rate of, of loss, I guess, than the other, right? Uh, you're saying 
is what like a diet break um, that's more than seven day, like seven days. No, no. What I'm saying is, let's say you decide to have a certain deficit, and then as you're doing that deficit, you say on weekends I'm going to go up to maintenance, but you don't actually reduce Monday through Friday. It's just going to slow oh. down your rate of loss, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I would say at that point you're not dieting, right? You're, there you go. <laughs> you're the, the entire time. And then, I mean, or we could call it a, a diet break. And some of us, or are a, on- you're still in a slight deficit because you have five versus the seven days. It depends on how much of a deficit you're in. But yeah, um, okay. So now the the next thing is plateaus, uh, and these are also quite common for folks when they start dieting. So maybe they go aggressively or not, and all of a sudden the deficit that they're in no longer works. Um, we know there's a lot of reasons for plateaus, right? And I'm a firm believer in tracking as much as you can. Some people don't you know, like to track a ton of data. What's really going on with a weight loss plateau with most people from what you've seen, right? Is it the metabolic adaptation? Is it you know, body recomposition? Because a lot of folks are new to lifting and they're getting into this. <laughs> you know, what is it? Well, yeah, that's, let's start there. So if you're somebody who is lifting weights or even just aerobically active when you're dieting and you're taking creatine monohydrate, which you should be, everybody should be taking, that's fit, that's, that's active, should be taking creatine. You're doing everything you can to prevent the scale from moving. And um, so appreciate that. You're not going to see somebody, well, I'll just use my mom as an example, who doesn't, when she goes on a diet, she does no exercise. Well, she's going to have more visual success of the scale moving because she's not maintaining muscle mass. She's not eating higher protein, which helps protect muscle mass. She's not taking creatine, which helps preserve muscle mass. So there's one consideration. Let's give ourselves a little, a little grace if we're doing everything we can to maintain muscle mass, which works against the scale for moving. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other the 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 real question that you asked is well what's the cause of it and it's it's one of two things it's either metabolic adaptation so your body is failing to respond to the caloric deficit that it once did so your body has adapted to what you were doing such that it what you were doing is no longer having the same impact and then the other side of this is a lack of adherence to what you used to be doing so there's there's re I can pull research studies to support either. So the latest one that I read was a mathematical modeling study. I, this was in one of my recent issues of Body by Science. These were researchers used mathematical modeling from real human subject studies. So they, it wasn't made up data. So they used the data that existed to model what the cause of a weight loss plateau is. So it's important to note that they predicted weight loss plateaus due to metabolic adaptation to occur at about two years. So if you diet for two years, your body will adapt to the point where it will stop losing body weight. But what we see in almost every single research study that's a year or longer is we see weight loss plateaus at about six months. They said, they asked the question, why? Their mathematical modeling suggested that it was not due to their metabolic, the subject's metabolic adaptation or their metabolic rate slowing down. It was because they stopped following the diet. They were not adhering to the diet anymore. So I, I, I take both sides of the data and I try to come up with a system that helps coaches who work with weight loss clients. And, and the way that I present this to, to coaches is this. If your client is struggling or is is having a self-proclaimed weight loss plateau, 
I don't think we're we're doing our job if we take them at their word and just assume that they're following the plan. So I mm-hmm. think we first have to say, are you really doing what you say you're doing? Is everything being tracked? Are you are you exercising more than what you're telling me or less than what you're telling me? So let's not have blind trust in our client about what they say they're doing. And there are going and let's say we've done those checks and they are, well then the other explanation is yes, there is some metabolic adaptation which is occurring. Which one is it? I I mean it depends on the client, but I think historically, we've all been quick to say metabolic adaptation. Mm-hmm. But in fact, eh, that, that might not be the case. And clearly here, another consideration is what's the level of your client? Are they pretty elite? Do they Are they high exercisers? Well, then I'm going to say that they're probably more on the metabolic adaptation part. If you're working with a new client for a couple of months, who's new to fitness, and they're saying, I can't lose weight anymore, then I'm going to, I'm going to, probably say maybe this is an adherence issue and then Mm -hmm. finally i'm going to say this because um, this everybody needs to hear this if you're if you're defining a let me let me phrase like this you as a coach need to define what a weight loss plateau is with your client the day or the week that you start working with them you do not want to be reactive help prepare them for it yeah yes it will happen (laughs) for sure and when it does happen, how are we going to define it? Is it because mm-hmm. you weighed less, you you weighed more today than you did yesterday? Because some people will use one day's weigh-in. Yep. Um, so again, you define what that is. I would here's what I would say, which everybody's going to just forget it. One month, four weeks of dieting in a row, where the, your body weight has not changed. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Now, again, it's easy. I'm a researcher and I don't have to put food on the table working with clients who are angry at me and my program. So it's easy for me to say a month. But still, I know I was literally looking at some data in our lab uh, in the last two days now. Um, Weight loss isn't linear. People, you think you're in a weight loss plateau, but if you just stayed with the same plan a couple more days or another week or another two weeks, you'll notice whoa, I just lost yep. three pounds and I changed nothing. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's but true. It's hard, yeah. right? That's, that goes against, it goes against our yeah. nature. I hear you. I, I, with my clients, we use like a three-week three moving average for that reason. And I'm like, don't, don't look at the scale. I want you to gather the data point. Just don't pay attention to the scale. Let's look at the average. Um, and there's one slight nuance I actually came to my mind when you mentioned not adhering to the diet. For new folks at tracking, and that is they just may not be tracking accurately and un- be unaware of it. So, for example, if they estimate food that they eat out, uh, that's really hard, right, for new yeah. people. So, they may be underestimating the calories, even though they're logging it, and therefore it looks like they're eating less than they are. That's the little nuance. Um, one that's, that's corner a, case. Yeah. That's a great point. And let me just yeah. give you huge kudos. If you have your clients agreeing to a three week rolling average, that's good. Like you, you've yeah. earned, you've somehow you've communicated or have a, a relationship with your clients that is earned because that's, I know that's, I can't get my, my wife to. <laughs> it's hard. Well, you have to have the data right next to the scale weight data as it rolls on. And you're like, look how the numbers are different. You know what I mean? Yeah. This one's smooth and this one goes up and down a lot. So we're going to yeah. go with the smooth one, you know? <laughs> but still, yeah, you're, you're, you're Anybody can say, "Look at the data," but not not everybody will will want to do it. So anyway, right. I I applaud you. That's Thank awesome. You. Yeah, yeah. So we got it. 
hey man, I had to learn this this stuff for myself too as I went along and figured out what worked. Um, yeah. All right, so I know we only have a few minutes left. Uh, just a couple of questions. The the last topic was going to be on training versus nutrition. You know, the adage "abs are made in the kitchen." There's always a debate of is one more important than the other. You've already talked about the importance of protein and strength training and <laughs> nutrition. So I think I know the answer, but. Um, what's the optimal balance between training and nutrition, if there is one? Um, if, well, I'll I'll just go with the first thought that came into my head. If you're trying to change the shape of your body, then training is going to change your body. If you're trying to lose the most weight in the shortest amount of time, then diet will be your your best approach. Which, obviously, I'm in this niche where we try to do both. We try to. Mm-hmm. get fat down to lower than average levels. And we try to maximize muscle mass as close to our genetic potential as possible. So that, that's a very fun niche to be in. So yeah, I, I think it really depends on, and, and there's also an argument here to be, you know, to have phases. So define your phase. Do you want to lose fat? Embrace that. Uh, we can lose a little mm-hmm. bit of lean. We don't want to, but right. we're going to be okay with losing some lean tissue if that's our goal. And if you're in a, I want to build muscle, well, then don't sabotage that by dieting every, you know, every other week when you, when you say your goal is to build t- lean tissue. So there's a, I, I always say, define your goal and then pursue that goal and don't sabotage it with, with nuance from, from the other side. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's, it's also the reason I know I personally prefer the term fat loss to weight loss to make that distinction. Well, what do you mean? Oh, well, let's let's break down the difference. You've got to hold on to your tissue to lose the fat, or else you're going to lose both. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So this is I like to ask this question of all guests, Bill, and that is, what one question did you wish I had asked, and what is your answer? Whew, all right, give me a minute. Um, what? <laughs> oh, I got it. Um, okay. What are you currently working on in your lab? So. Um, what we're currently working on, and I have to give credit to my research coordinator, uh, Corey LaFontan. He's coordinating this entire study for us. We're comparing what's better for fat loss, resistance training or aerobic exercise or cardio. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that by, we're compiling every study we can in the English language that meets our criteria that had an aerobic group within one study and in the same study of resistance training group, and then a concurrent group. So we're only looking at the studies that were designed to best answer that question. So hopefully by next year, we're going to have an answer. If you're trying to lose body fat, is it better to do cardio only or resistance training only? And of course, we know what happens if you combine them, you get the best fat loss outcomes. So that's Love what we're doing. All right. Looking forward to that. And I'll keep, I'll keep subscribing to Body by Science. Encourage anyone listening to do the same if you want to learn the same kind of insights. Um, where can listeners learn more about you, Bill? Uh, two places. Um, my Instagram is Bill Campbell PhD. And thank you for being a subscriber to Body by Science. It is my, I just, I love it. Um, this month's issues about the uh, semaglutide, the, the, the anti-obesity drug. It's a, it's a really good primer and something that I haven't mentioned yet, but I'm going to be going live with all of my subscribers to talk about the threats to fitness professionals who work with weight loss clients. And we're also going to talk about opportunities that this drug can give us in this space. So not mentioned that anywhere yet. Um, but I plan to go live uh, uh, 
probably three times to make sure that I can try to capture all of my subscribers that want to, to that want to attend that. So I'm going to give a little bit of a lecture on that. And again, to, the the real meat of that will be let's let's not be fearful of this and be powerless. Let's use this to help us serve more people, make more money as fitness professionals. And I'm I, I'm very excited about that. And I have not done that before with my subscribers. Okay, so uh, your IG and Body by Science? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Instagram, Bill Campbell, PhD. And then my website, if you want to get Body by Science, it's uh, BillCampbellPhD.com. And I'll just say, you won't regret it. <laughs> it is, I bring in uh, experts, people like you, to apply the research in their own coaching client relationship. So I review the studies. I have experts come in and say, here's how I would apply this. Um, and then again, I'm going to add on the some live sessions as well. Yeah, that's my favorite part of it, actually, is after you wrap up the article, you have a couple experts that provide their um, insights based on practice. So really good stuff, Bill. Great talking with you. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a true joy. I'll put all the links in the show notes so listeners can find you. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wits and Weights. If you found value in today's episode and know someone else who's looking to level up their wits or weights please take a moment to share this episode with them and make sure to hit the follow button in your podcast platform right now to catch the next episode. Until then, stay strong. Hey, before you go, I want to let you know about a free resource I have. They are free guides on everything from fat loss to eating out to building muscle to managing hunger to figuring out the best macros for you and more being added all the time. You want to get the most out of these podcasts and your time to look and feel your best. And these free guides will give you a quick and easy way to know what to do. If you want to get your hands on these completely free guides, you can head over to witsandweights.com slash free. That's witsandweights.com slash free to get your free guides and level up your results today.